Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thank you for joining us on another edition of American Potential. As you know, I've recently traveled to the U.S.-Mexico border, and we've brought you a lot of stories uh, from the border. I've traveled there twice in the last several months to McAllen, Texas, and brought you several stories from there, but also to Yuma, Arizona, hoping to bring you the stories about the humanitarian crisis created by the bad policies implemented by the Biden administration and its strain that it's putting on on the U.S. Border Patrol, as well as the communities along the border and across America. But what is it like to be the mayor of one of these cities and what challenges do they face? Today's guest is the mayor of Yuma, Arizona, and he spoke to the group that I was a part of that visited Yuma so we could see firsthand what it was like on the ground. The mayor has seen how bad border policies not only affect his community, but he's also seen the impacts of the cartels and their human trafficking because of the human and financial impacts. The mayor has sent a letter to President Biden asking for him to declare a national emergency. I want to welcome Yuma Mayor Doug Nichols to the show. Mr. Mayor, thanks for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me on, and it's good to see you again. Yes, great seeing you again, and and thank you. By the way, uh, Stephen Shattig told me that you you are challenging last year's barbecue winner of the Barbecue and Brew Festival to a steak cook-off. Now, I need to know a little bit more about that because those both sound like amazing, barbecue and steak cook-off sound amazing. So tell me about that. Well, we do a barbecue and brews festival on Main Street here, and uh, yeah. I always challenge the previous year's winner from the barbecue section to a, a cook-off and it's on a little tiny Weber grill with, with charcoal, not, it's nothing fancy meant yeah. to be kind of, kind of your entry level backyard kind of thing. Sure. And I'm Owen three. So I'm, I don't have a very good record, but um, <laughs> it's always a good time. Uh, and I have, I love steak. So to have a nice ribeye cooked just the way I like it, I don't care if I win because I get to eat the steak after. <laughs> hey, so. you you win either way, right? Exactly, exactly. So <laughs> come on down. We'll make sure you get the information and uh, maybe we can work in as a judge or something. That sounds great. Listen, I'll tell you what. I was really impressed with Yuma. I had never been to Yuma. been to Arizona many times, but I had never been to Yuma before. And I was really impressed. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful area, beautiful valley that you live in. Um, really a great place. And I think for people who haven't visited Yuma, they should go do that. I, I, I'll give you the little uh, convention and visitors bureau speech there, well, um, I, but it, it really is a neat place. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's what's the, one of the very frustrating things beyond the, the obvious immigration laws being broken and all the other stuff, but that, that this one issue has sought to try to define our community. And, and we're so much more than that. And there's so many great things happening and the people here are amazing. And there's, there's tons of reasons why, uh, this is just isn't telling the right story for our community, but it's such an important story about immigration and what's happening at the border that we need to talk about it. So it's this yin and yang, you know, the positive, the negative. How do we how do we have that balance so that our perception is more realistic for what you saw, um, but still addresses this very, very serious issue? Yeah. Now, how long have you been mayor and, and I, why did you run for mayor? 
I uh, took office in 2014, so it's okay. been a little while, a little over nine years now. Uh, and I ran um, because I saw local government um, struggling a bit uh, on leadership, on really professionalism. My background, I'm a civil engineer, and professionalism mm-hmm. in engineering is paramount. That's what you're always looking to provide. And so um, I was asked by a couple community members to run, and I kind of discounted it at first. Uh, because I didn't really have, I don't have politics in my blood kind of thing. So um, right. I ended up talking to my wife and we talked it over and she's for my business sake, as well as the greater community to have a community that's thriving and, and that's organized and that's professional helps everybody. And so that's, that's kind of how I got in. I expected to do one four year term and here I am on the third term, <laughs> um, yeah. but it, it really uh, it is a great community and it's an honor to to be at this helm um, for this long and have that kind of uh, commitment from people uh, and just really just give back in, in a way that I never thought I could. Yeah. So at the time when you first ran uh, and first time you were elected, how big of an issue was immigration and border security then? Well, you know, it was it was an issue uh, because, you know, post 9-11 and, and all those things were still top of mind. We were still fighting a lot of wars overseas and um, the domestic home front, you know, the domestic front was always something we were looking to protect. But um, as far as large numbers coming through the border, we hadn't seen that in probably six, seven years prior to that. Uh, we had a big rush in the early like 2006, 2007 era. And that's when they built the first wall along the border and the numbers came in line and they had uh, Operation Streamline. And so those things were already kind of in place and, and were being very effective. My father wasn't an agent, but he was in Border Patrol um, DHS and retired out of that about 10 years ago. So my whole life has always been a little bit focused on on our community from a, the border side, just because of that familiarity. Yeah. And I'll tell you what I was really struck with when, when I traveled both to McAllen and to Yuma is this is a crisis of government making the federal government. Uh, it's, it's not yours. You have to deal with it. Uh, local 501 C3 nonprofits have to deal with the impacts and they're, they're on the ground solving problems, but the crisis itself, and it truly is a crisis and it's a humanitarian crisis as well as a national security crisis. I think there's lots of, of things, components to it is, is really caused by the, by the terrible decisions of policymakers at the federal level. And this administration has done that on steroids. I mean, I, I think they've, they've really made some very bad decisions that are causing a, a very sad humanitarian crisis on the border and in your community. That's true. I mean, the, the laws of immigration have been on the books for 30 years, right? Uh, so it's the right. policy of each administration that sets how those laws get applied. And so we've seen it different over the years. Um, and, you know, we have these, these spikes. Um, under President Trump, we had a couple spikes. And in 2000, I believe it was, must have been 19, we had a very large spike. Um, but within three months, it, the policies were put in place that um, enacted the laws in such a way that were effective. And that's what we saw because by the end of his administration, the numbers were about 8,000 people crossing a year. Um, that's those are, are very very low numbers even to our our normal numbers um, if you want to define whatever normal is um, <laughs> right but um, when the next administration came in I, I get they want to do their own thing and they want to 
have their policies reflect whatever they want to reflect, but there was essentially no policy. Um, and then that created a chaos really for our agents. They, they're not sure where they're at. Um, they did not sign up to be immigration officers. They signed up to protect the border, to protect the homeland. So um, to have to deal every day, all day with waves of people coming through, uh, it just really challenges them and what their mission is. Uh, and that's why you're seeing a lot of problems within our border patrol structure, uh, just from a morale perspective. Um, so those policies are deliberate because that's what a policy is, is a deliberate decision based upon what the, the laws are. And so um, to remove policy and not put anything effective in place or to at least attempt to, we're at year, what, two and a half years into this, there really hasn't been any proactive policies put in place that would uh, dramatically change the flow. I see this in a lot of ways as, as maybe a false choice. Um, one of the examples I guess I'd compare it to is, you know, energy development. Sometimes people say you can either have energy development or you can have a clean environment. And that's not, that's not the case. Those aren't mutually exclusive. You can, you can do both, right? We can, we can develop our energy resources in a, in an environmentally responsible way. And we can actually have both. And I think at the border, we can have border security and a rule of law, but also have a system which is compassionate and allows for right. the, the resources and the needs of the people in our community. Your community has a lot of agriculture and they are dependent upon legal workers who come over from Mexico and do, do these, do these jobs. Your thoughts on that, it, that, that we're not, we just don't have the balance, right? It seems like uh, between national security and border security, if you will, and allowing people to come here and, and meaningfully work. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's, it's a balance issue. Anything that happens between the ports of entry is something that shouldn't happen. And neither country on either side of the border really should want it to happen because it's, it's unregulated. It, it leaves people open to being exploited and you don't know what's coming in or leaving either country. And that's, that's not good for either country. But um, from a balanced perspective, you know, I have a real, um, a real concern that we make sure we provide humanitarian aid, particularly asylum. But the problem is when you have hundreds of thousands of people coming over, essentially claiming the same thing, it waters down the ability to provide effective asylum. And so mm -hmm. to try to balance that, what I believe should really happen is we should be way in advance of this. We should not be waiting till they come to the border. We should be in other countries. And if they need asylum, then we can work with other countries. That asylum process that we could help with doesn't all have to happen in our country. And that would alleviate that push. But the problem with that push is the humanitarian atrocities that happen during that path to the border are so egregious that if that was happening in, in any other country in the world, we would be the first country to stand up and say, right. that can't happen. You need to stop it. You need to do whatever you can to stop it. Yet, when it comes to people coming to our country, that is completely ignored. The rapes, the exploitation, the, the, the murder, the abuse, uh, the tra trafficking is really the, the single word that defines all of that. And we're, we've turned a blind eye to it and it's allowed because it fits some sort of weird narrative. Yeah. Well, and not only I think is it is it just allowed it, it the big driver in this is the US government's policy right here is what people are coming because they think they're going to be able to 
to game the system and mm-hmm. that we've got this broken system. If we fix that system, people wouldn't be making that treacherous trip um, and, you know, risking their lives, their children's lives for right. this. Uh, right. I mean, isn't isn't it really just our government, our federal government and bad policy on their part? It, it is because we had a project, uh, Project Streamline, which was in the early 2000s. What that did is it prosecuted everybody coming across. So if, if you're in another country thinking about making the trip and your neighbor went and three weeks later he's back, he spent $10,000 and he got returned right back where he started from, you're less likely to want to take that trip, right? Right. So it's not about being punitive to the guy who's just trying to come here to work. It's about setting the law down that this is not the way you do it. Uh, and so when you have that law in in practice and Project Streamline is something the agents here know. They've worked with it. Most of them you know, have been around that long and the, the leadership definitely knows. And so to turn and say that, well, that's not an effective policy, that was still even in place, I believe, under uh, President Obama's administration. So it really isn't a Republican Democrat thing, a conservative liberal thing. It was just an effective policy that worked. Um, we need to go back to something more like that. One of the biggest shames that that I see in this whole uh, issue is you've got the federal government making decisions that are impacting local governments, and you're the ones that have to deal with the consequences. What are the biggest impacts of this crisis on your community? Well, you know, just to that exact point, you know, I I talk as regularly as I can with the White House and with DHS leadership in, in Washington, D.C., and about I don't know, six, eight months ago, it kind of opened up my vision to understand what their perspective is. Their perspective is that once they release these the migrants to the communities, that is no longer a federal issue. That is a community issue and the communities need to solve it. And with that perspective, we'll never have the federal government try to come and take care of the situation because they're here to help us take care of it. Well, no, we, we're not controlling the flow. We're not accepting this as, as something that we want to do day to day. So it's your federal government. It's your responsibility. And, and that perception difference means every conversation we have, we start apart. We don't ever start together. Mm-hmm. But the impacts really come down to uh, right now. It's been our nonprofits have been heavily impacted. Uh, we have one nonprofit that handles just about everyone being released from the Border Patrol station. And uh, when they're released, they help provide uh, transportation to other communities or to um, transportation hubs like airports in larger cities. That's great. And we're very thankful for the work that they do at the Regional Center for Border Health. But that's not their primary mission. So they have pivoted to make that happen. But there's ancillary impacts. Um, our hospital has, uh, has to treat everybody, rightfully so, from a humanitarian standpoint. Federal government's not there always to back them up and pay for those expenses. So who's paying for those expenses? Me and the constituents in this area when we go get service. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, um, unfortunately, uh, we have uh, young girls that come across claiming sexual abuse. We take them to our, our shelter here, the, not a shelter, Amberly's place where they, they help collect evidence and, and put together a case. But there's no way to prosecute those cases because they happen in other countries. Uh, right. So all we do is witness the the devastation that that process leaves behind on the innocent. Um, so there's those kind of things, you know, from a city perspective, we've taken a very strong stand uh, and we've we just don't have the funding 
uh, to commit to this. So we do things um, to help coordinate. We help bring people together. Um, when we had some releases, just um, boy, was that in May, uh, we did have some releases to the street. So we're able to use a city facility for a nonprofit to come and, and bring people to their shelter in Phoenix. Um, so we were able to be that conduit instead of uh, just letting people happen in the street. But we don't have large uh, dollars committed to this. And you would, might be surprised to, to know, but our community doesn't have a nonprofit that's really set up to help people through that system that that was their, their, their mission. It, it has to be these nonprofits that pivot to make, um, make sure that the humanitarian issues are taken care of and they don't snowball into larger and larger issues. Yeah, there's really two failures on the part of the federal government that I see here. One is the policy itself, this magnet, this this telling folks in other countries, you know, if you come, you'll get through. We're not going to enforce current immigration law. Um, you know, it's just a broken system and that system needs to be changed and Congress ought to change it. Yeah. But so that's one failure, I think, the on the part of the Biden administration. But the other one is this just sort of washing their hands of it and mm-hmm. and saying, well, you know, it's not really our problem. They're here. You've got to deal with it and letting local governments and states in a lot of cases have to deal with this. And it's a gigantic burden, both fiscally, I'm sure, on the city of Yuma and, and other communities along the border. But, but you know, I don't think people realize folks get on buses from Yuma and they go to Denver or Minneapolis or Chicago or wherever. This is an, an issue that is affecting people all across America. It definitely is. And, and when the mayors of New York and Washington, D.C., when they started speaking up, it was it was actually a bit of a relief, to be honest. Yeah, it was like, finally, we have somebody, you know, outside the border that that shows the impact. Now, I will maybe take issue with the level of impact uh, when you have a city of multi-million people versus a city of 100,000 people. Right. The disparities glaring. But, hey, let's have the conversation because it needs to be able to be talked about nationwide. The other part, this porous border is it opens the door for fentanyl and all those other drugs to come into this country. I just heard this statistic the other day that over 50% of the fentanyl that comes in the United States comes through the Arizona border. Wow. Why is that? It's because it's open, it's porous, and the federal government is busy taking care of migrants instead of patrolling the border. Now, the numbers have dropped from the number of people crossing. Uh, we're not at a normal situation. We're still about 10 times more than the normal, but we're not uh, 100 times more than the normal. So, you know, we're we're making headway there. So some of that drug interdiction is happening now on a more proactive way. But we know that that fentanyl crisis has no borders. That That goes all the way across the country in every state. And it starts with making sure you have a strong border. Yeah. So Americans for Prosperity Foundation brought a group of folks down and I was part of that a trip as well to, to see the impacts. They traveled to Yuma, met with you, met with other community leaders, uh, your share, your sh- county sheriff, and several others, and to see those impacts. But how important is it for people to come see that firsthand? I think if you don't live on the border, you don't know what's going on on the border. I, you know, to me, I think it's tremendously important. I'm sure you feel that same way. It, it is tremendously important. It's one of those things that you have to see for yourself, right? There's a lot of things that we can learn about in books and on the internet, but until you go see it, you don't really begin to understand it. Sometimes, you know, I like to think of this as well, all the great things. So you go to see the Eiffel Tower or the Statue of Liberty. 
it's not the same thing when you see it in a picture, right? Or right. read a statistic. You go see it for a reason. Well, kind of in the negative sense, we need to have that here. And and to the point where even our some of our community members haven't been out to see exactly what's happening. Um, so when people come, we want to try to give them as much access to that as they, they can uh, get access to uh, so they can understand really the wave of humanity, the, uh, the humanitarian issues, because it's not just border security. There's a human, there's a human part of this that we need to make sure we're not ignoring. Doesn't mean we accommodate it the way it's currently being accommodated, but if we ignore it, I think we would fail also as a country. So yeah. um, having that balance, I think you can only see firsthand. And um, anytime anyone wants to come, just reach out to my office and, and we'll do everything we can to make sure you can you can see what's going on in, in real time. Well, and you talked about, you know, people coming and, and traveling there again, this they need to see what's happening this is caused by the federal government, their, their inability to enforce the law uh, along the border and the problems that it's causing for your community and really the, the problems that it's creating for your community. What do you think people would be most surprised about uh, if they come travel to Yuma and the perceptions? I'm sure you hear it when you travel. People say, oh, you're the mayor of Yuma. Well, here's what I think. You're on the border. And what do you think people would be most surprised about? Well, one, I think they'd be surprised how lack of control I can actually enforce. Um, a right. lot of, I get a lot of emails and the emails are, well, you, you're causing the problem. Just stop them from crossing. Well, <laughs> you got to go back to civics class because that's yeah, not right. exactly how this works. Right. Um, but from the perspective of how easy it is to cross, um, there's no armed guard trying to stop you. Uh, you, you can just, you can just come right across. Um, on the other side, there's, and it's the tougher part to see is you have to pay your your mordida, your 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 toll, your your tax to come across, and and you know I've heard stories of up to fifteen thousand dollars to make that happen. But um, seeing the people that come across, and really um, in times past, particularly in the two thousand nineteen era when I was uh, really involved at that time, the people coming across, you know, they had one you know Walmart grocery bag with their whole life in it, and when they came across, well, the people coming across today are coming across with Gucci bags and two or three suitcases, and some have come across with pets. I mean, these are not people that are truly at the at the bottom of their societies trying and scrapping to get better, uh, better lives. These are more of a middle class, maybe lower middle class trying to make this trip. And I think that would surprise a lot of people because I think that takes the humanitarian aspect and, and puts it in a different light. Um, not everybody coming across is being um, abused and fearful of their life, no matter what they actually say when they get here, because there's a magic magic phrase you say when you get in front of Border Patrol that opens up doors. And so um, knowing that kind of it's that mix and it's not the the true, uh, you know, on the Statue of Liberty, give, give me your poor and your huddled masses, and not, that's not exactly what's happening right now. And, and I think that helps people understand why we need to be more proactive on enforcing our laws because people are taking advantage of us. Yeah. I, one of the things I was really struck by is the cartels. I mean, the cartels are in business. It's big business for them. Uh, and it's not just on the other side of the border. It sounds like that's spilling over and our federal government is allowing that to happen. But these, these cartels literally are making, I mean, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, probably on, on this traffic and this trade, human trafficking, um, fentanyl, drugs, all of that. And they're just, they're reaping 
huge financial benefit from that. Well, just to give you an example, the traffic through the Yuma sector, the Yuma Border Patrol sector alone, has been estimated at about $12 million a week. Wow. So it's easily into the wow. billions of dollars a year. And that's part of the, the understanding people need to, to come to realization to is that this is big business. Cartels are not just a bunch of guys with guns that are just, you know, unorganized and running roughshod all over Mexico. These are well-organized organizations with pricing, with collections, with enforcement, with connections. And to, to know that you can't just put the wheels, you can't just stop the wheels on something moving that large without really having some resistance. And that's part, I think, part of the, what the discussion needs to be is what influence are they having? Why hasn't this stopped? And where can we inter, interdict or engage in that process to get those wheels to stop? Because it won't stop on its own. This is um, a business that pays for generations and generations of cartels to, to continue to operate. And they just get stronger. The more money they have, the stronger they get. That's very concerning. Yeah, it, it's very concerning. And again, um, something that the federal government needs to step in and, and do this. I don't think the American people uh, understand fully that what we're allowing is for this stuff to exist on our soil. And again, I don't know why a, a federal government would allow that and, and uh, you know, not bring in all the resources that they need. You sent a letter to President Biden about what's happening in Yuma. What did the letter say? Why was it important to send that to the president? Well, it, basically, the letter was, hey, enough is enough. We need you to declare a national state of emergency because that opens up resources that we currently don't have access to and really puts this situation in the right perspective, in the right light for the country, for the national discussion. Um, and my thoughts are what we really needed with uh, the numbers that we were anticipating at the time we needed boots on the ground response. We needed, whether that was the engagement of National Guard or um, Red Cross or even FEMA, setting up tents, taking care of the humanitarian issues, providing the transportation, not relying again upon the local governments and the non local nonprofits, but doing it as you would say a hurricane, right? Hurricane comes, they don't wait. They know there's a hurricane coming. They start to prepare and they get there as soon as they can get there and their boots on the ground, and, and they're taking care of the humanitarian needs. Well, if Border Patrol is not going to be able or not given the tools to turn those people around uh, and they're going to have to release them into the streets, then they should be releasing them as you would deal with any other emergency um, in a organized, government-funded, sponsored, and operated process, not just this random chaos that um, their policy seems to in indicate. Right. Well, Mr. Mayor, thank you. First of all, thanks for hosting us. Thanks for uh, the great work you're doing as, as mayor down in Yuma and, uh, and, you know, kind of bringing this to light. Um, we appreciate all the, the hard work that you're doing. Well, I appreciate that, but it's, I'm just the guy that gets on camera. There's plenty of other people doing the actual hard work. Uh, and we look forward to um, seeing where we can go. You know, the numbers are down, which is great, but uh, the situation's not over. So we're still trying to get prepared for any future upticks, but then also pushing for those policy changes and ultimately congressional changes. All right. Well, listen, thanks, Mr. Mayor. We appreciate your time. Anytime. Thank you. All right. Well, listen, if you'd like to read a story from an Arizona resident who attended the Yuma trip, 
You can go to Americans for Prosperity Foundation Facebook page and you can see it there. And we'd love to hear from you. Send me an email, jeff at americanpotential.com. Thanks for joining us for another edition of American Potential. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.